2: Start a 30 day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
0: The year is 1982. And who let the dogs out? It's the thing, 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 thing. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson.
3: And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to figure out the 100 best movies of all time. We went through the AFI Top 100 list. We have culled that list down to a nice 40 films, and we are looking for 60 more. And right now we are going through uh, genres and different areas of films to find which films might be the best. And when we do, when we have our full list, we are blasting it off into space, which is actually pretty interesting considering this film that we're doing today. It might uh, land on the Thing's planet. I mean, would the Thing like the Thing or movies? Yeah. Would the Thing
0: be contaminated by the magic and beauty of The Wizard of Oz and say, I want to live in a more colorful world? Could we out-thing the Thing with our great films?
3: Or would it just turn into a DVD and then when you go to put it in, it would infect you and then rip your body in half? Either way, so many things to think about. Um, and Amy, just while we're talking about ending our horror series, that means that we're going to be starting a brand new series, uh, which will reveal at the end of this episode what that genre is. And if you want to watch us announce it live Friday on Twitch, you can join Amy and I as we hear all of your feedback about the horror films and reveal what we'll be talking about up until Christmas. Uh, so follow me or Amy or anybody on social, our social channels to find out when we're going live. And if you miss the live uh, performance, you can catch it on replay. It's right there. Just twitch.tv slash Paul You know, Amy, talking about the thing infecting you and, and taking you over, I want to implore the people listening to the show right now to to be infected with the idea to rate and review this show wherever you listen to the show if it's on Spotify if it's on iTunes it's so helpful to us we don't ever mention this I don't think that we've mentioned it in the entire time that we've actually done our show no, and we were recently really rem-
0: crazy that we have it.
3: <laughs> I know uh <laughs> So uh, it really helps get our uh, our show up in the algorithm. So if you like the show, uh, please always tell a friend, but also just take a couple of seconds and rate and review us because uh, it really, uh, really helps people discover the show. And we've been finding so many people have been uh, finding out about the show, but uh, through conversation. And we don't want you to do that. We want you to get into an algorithm. That's where we think is important. Get involved in the algorithm, people.
0: I mean, to be honest, I'd rather people find out about our show through interpretive dance.
3: Well, I mean, that has been my dream. Unfortunately, COVID has really made it hard for me to get into people's houses late at night and do my dances, my back-to-school dance, my horror dance, uh, you know. So uh, once we are, you know, safe from this pandemic, I'm breaking into houses and doing those dances.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And actually, while you're um, clicking on and looking for us check out our game show, which is out, check out Screen Test. We are so excited that the first episode came out. We've, I think I can go ahead and say, taped another one that I think is just as fun. Uh, I'm excited for the whole world to see this game, well, hear this game, and play along with us, and scream, and yell, and rate, and perform, and do the challenges, <laughs> and then audition. Wow, you're like, they're I'm doing so a lot. This you're challenge, making, I'm going to do it.
3: You're and making making people do, do a lot. Challenge. This is a very, act. <laughs> this is like a, a Peloton class. Uh mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, um, we want you to listen to the show, and you can't listen to it uh, the normal way that you would listen to this podcast. You have to actually sign up for Stitcher Premium. Uh, so go to stitcher.com slash premium. You can sign up with the code UNSPOOLED. You'll get a free month of Stitcher Premium. You'll get access to screen Test. You'll get these episodes commercial-free. And anything that Amy and I have done in the past, I mean, that's uh, the canon or how did this get made, all commercial-free Just go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the offer code unspooled to see if you like it and so you can have access to this brand new game show, which will be dropping uh, twice a month from here on in.
0: Mm -hmm. Twice a month. I would do it every day if we could. I love it.
3: Amy, I'm so excited to talk about this movie today. This is the listener selection, right? Every miniseries, we turn it over to the listeners to vote. And this one won by such a clear margin. We talked about it a few episodes ago, like, How uh, just, I mean, this was a decisive victory for the I mean, it's
0: basically like the listeners out there, all of y'all listening were like, here's a flamethrower and I'm going to take it to the voting tally of every other movie because (laughs) this movie is definitely winning.
3: And I have to say, Amy... Uh, you know, I was just blown away by Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Egerton. Uh, you know, they just really brought it. Eric Christian Olsen's so good, uh, you know. And I was, you know, for me, I had never seen a uh, Mathis Van Hedginger Jr. movie before. So I was into the thing.
0: You know, Paul, that's going to be our next 100 films. We're talking oh. about the 1982 thing right now. The oh, John- not the 2000. Oh, and not honestly, the And honestly, before we get to the uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead masterpiece, I would be wanting to do the 1950s thing first.
3: Yes, which is so incredibly good uh, as well. And I really want to start doing a uh, miniseries where we mm-hmm. go back and forth between uh, a remake and, and the classic or, you know, something even like Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein. I, I think that that would be actually a really fun like uh, miniseries to do, like a little uh, a mirror uh, miniseries.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the miniseries equivalent of um Groucho Marx dancing with himself.
3: I believe that's Chico.
0: Is it Chico? Is it yes. Harpo? I get them all confused. The spirit of the thing compels them all to dance.
3: <laughs> all right, well, Amy, uh, let's get into the listener pick, the thing. So it's time to, oh, God, oh, unspool it! I was being ripped open by the thing.
0: Wow, that was the sound of your organs unspooling.
3: All right, the year is 1982, and it's like, so bitchin'. All the cool kids are playing Miss Pac-Man, breakdancing, doing the moonwalk, and sweating to Jane Fonda's workout tapes. The price of a movie ticket is $3. Tron is snubbed at the uh, Oscars for Best Visual Effects because the Academy considers computer-generated visuals to be, wait for it, cheating. Cheating. That's right. Um, The first president of Zimbabwe uh, passes a law forbidding jokes about his name because his name was Kanan Banana. Uh so uh <laughs> thought that was a real fun fact. Uh Frank Zappa releases the iconic single Valley Girl, and it's like tubular for sure. And this year's hot films are E.T., which we've already covered on the show, Sophie's Choice, which we've already covered on the show, Tootsie, which we already covered on the show, Blade Runner, which we already covered on the show, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which we already covered on the show, Poltergeist, not covered, and today's film, The Thing. And wow, what a year 1982 was, great films, so diverse. Let's listen to a clip from the thing.
4: You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. This for instance, that's not dog imitation we got to it before it had time to finish finish what finish imitating these dogs
3: amy who's in it and what's it about the thing
0: this is the tougher terser 1980s adaptation of howard hawks's 1951 sci-fi flick the thing from another world and that itself is based on a 1938 novella called who goes there the thing is directed by john carpenter who is one of the hugest fans of Howard Hawks that exists. I mean, by the time he made the thing, he had already reworked Hawks's Western Real Bravo into that, have you seen that really punkish, cool, ultra-modern movie, Assault on Precinct 13?
3: Yes, I love anyway, that movie. Yes.
0: Anyway, the basic setup of the thing is that a base in Antarctica has discovered an alien frozen in the ice. And when they take the alien to camp, the men turn on each other. But in his version, Carpenter's after something way more cynical and way more gross than the original film. Because his thing is not a vegetable it's the shapeshifter who kills people and it replicates their bodies so the all-male cast of this movie who was like Wilfred brimley keith david tk carter charles Holahan, donald moffat and of course the stars kurt russell as rj mccready and jed the wolf dog as the thing itself they're all going to turn on each other in the struggle to survive and the thing about the thing is the more suspicious you are the more likely you are to stay alive at least another 10 minutes This movie is a really, really dark, cynical, suspicious movie. And when it came out on June 25th, 1982, it was not a hit. There was a lot of other stuff to see. In fact, this movie only peaked on the box office charts at number eight because audiences were not in the mood for a movie about paranoia. Instead, audiences just wanted people to get along. And you can tell that when you take it and rewind it back to June 25th, 1982, because the number one song on the charts was this duet by Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. We
1: all know that people are the same Wherever you go, there is good and bad In everyone And we learn to live We learn to give each other What we need to survive
0: And, you know, when you listen to that song, it really is about what we have to do to survive. And maybe Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder would do better in this film than Kurt Russell and uh, Keith David. Or maybe not. But I would, I would watch them in the thing.
3: So, Amy, obviously, we've both seen this film. It's a great movie. I mean, I think it's undeniable that this is up there in the pantheon of great horror films. Uh, you know, seen by the fact that our listeners picked this by such uh, a giant margin. But... Watching well, it's it,
0: undeniable by us, not so much by everybody who was alive when the thing came out. But yeah, but yeah, this film has definitely ascended to really the top of the genre heap, which I think is it's an interesting story to go back and trace. It, it's the uh, it's a wonderful life of men getting their heads torn open.
3: Well, I mean, you know, going back to our research on the AFI list, we are finding this kind of pattern happening all the time. You know, a movie that's a little bit ahead of its time and that has the longest legs uh seems to not often click with a modern audience because i think it's doing a few things that are unexpected or maybe different than what people wanted it to be cuz i don't think i ever thought of this film as a horror film it's the same way that i probably put alien in a different category as well like it's more sci-fi i mean it is horror it is gruesome and scary but i think because the creature is uh an alien i don't know why i think of it not as uh you know not as a traditional horror movie do you do you find that too or i or do you think of this as a horror film
0: i mean the horror when it arrives is just the horror of watching a body turn inside out of watching like humans you know reveal their spleens and become shaved shifting dogs? And would it become so, I, I, I feel like this film reaches for at least a visceral horror. Like, and I mean that both in the sense of guts being on screen and also audiences recoiling. You know, this isn't like a right. tiptoe around even Babadookian horror film. This right. is a like, oh my God. But it is between moments of, a, it's almost like a song. It's like, here is a really tense, tense, tense drumbeat punctuated with like symbols crashing really loud.
3: I mean, the effects in this movie are absolutely gruesome to the point that I was recoiling and and actually being grossed out and scared by it. But I also think the DNA in this movie, it, it reminds me of Alien and, and 12 Angry Men. And so when I hear John Carpenter <laughs> it talk... it is
0: literally about 12 Angry Men.
3: You know, I, you know what? As a matter of fact, you're 100% right. Yes. Um, I would not. By the way, let's remake 12 premise. Angry Men with these men.
0: <laughs> Why does it remind me of these two films?
3: <laughs> Look, it's exactly those two films. Uh, you're so right.
0: Three men and a baby, but 12 <laughs> angry men and an alien. I mean, that's really what it is.
3: <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's so much more going on here. I mean, this movie is this kind of giant metaphor uh, and it's so beautifully uh sorry. Let me. I don't want to get into metaphor yet. I want to say, like, mm-hmm. uh, you say like, uh, well, yeah. There's just so much going on here, and I think what I really was impressed by on this watch because I'm watching it for the show, is how elegant it is. It's such a simple film, and it's so uh, set up perfectly and cleanly. I, I'm I'm kind of in awe of of how little they need to do, how much the space, even though it's small, doesn't feel claustrophobic in a way where you're like, oh, just get me into a new location, get me into another thing. It's, it really is this small character drama where occasionally people are being lit on fire uh, and blowing up and uh, screaming. But I mean, there are, I mean, it, it really is in many respects, I think it may be Carpenter's best film.
0: Ooh, I mean, there's a lot of competition for that, but This is his movie that I find possibly the most controlled. You know, when I imagine this movie, it's weird. The the image I get in my head when I think about the thing is almost like a work of modernist art. You know how, like, there was that art in the 80s that was black and white and graphic. Like, oh, I'm a girl, like, throwing my head back. That kind of like, you know what I mean? The black and white really posterized look with splashes of color. That, to me, is what the thing is. I mean, this is a movie that is very silent with then loud moments of screaming, you know, a movie that's pretty monochromatic, you know, grays and blacks and whites and snows, and then suddenly like blood red and red fire. It it has these jarring contrasts to me. It's like a I don't know a, a beech tree with like one really bright red leaf, and it the moments where it explodes are punctuated because John Carpenter is keeping it so tamped down, you know, very quiet, very hush hush, very interior, and then blah.
3: What I love about this film is it doesn't fall into traditional trope traps. Uh, and I trope say that traps. tropey that like traps a type of music. <laughs> well, look, they don't show what this monster is. I don't even think you will ever know what this alien is supposed to really look like. You you see these, you know, pieces of it, which makes it way more scary, right? Like it it, it looks a little bit like a spider, but one of those disgusting spiders, a big belly, but you know, it, it eludes you and the way that they shoot it, it's constantly changing and morphing. And I think that's, you know, keeps you on your toes because you don't know what you're even running from or how you're even going to get it. Right. It's like, it's like the killer is in the house and he might kill you. And you don't even know if you're killed. I mean, it's, I love that premise of it, like that the people who are embodied by this thing don't even know because it does such a great job replicating you that you think you are you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a horror film without a target or without anything you can necessarily invade, which yeah. is why I would say, you know, to draw a parallel to another early 80s movie, which is why I would say Nightmare on Elm Street is like superior to something like Friday the 13th. Because mm-hmm. in Nightmare the Elm, Nightmare on Elm Street, you can't really outrun Freddy because eventually you're going to go to sleep. Like you're fighting something you can't right. control. Whereas in the Friday the 13th movies, it's a dude in a hockey mask and a knife. And like, okay, fine.
3: Well, it, first of all, let's was, be fair. It's also sometimes a lady in a hockey okay, mask.
0: You're right, a you're right. You're right. You're right. And not back. even a hockey equity, mask. It's a woman Je- with equity a... Equity and slashers. Um, <laughs> yeah. And part of that, I think it comes from Carpenter's own love of old sci-fi and that he wanted to make a movie that he said his like first role was just no guy in a rubber suit. I mean, this is him talking about it.
3: See, I grew up as a kid watching science fiction and monster movies and it was always a guy in a suit
4: or sometimes it was a kind of bad puppet like it conquered the world comes to mind right now roger corman's movie this kind of vegetable monster kind of going like this woodenly and my fear was they'll laugh at us you know they'll laugh and they'll be a joke i mean even as great as the movie was an alien was a terrific movie it's still in the very end up stood this big guy in a suit Oh, I don't want to do a suit. You know, I want something that's that's alive. So
3: Well, I love that. And I actually even heard that uh, attributed to the screenwriter. Because when the screenwriter pitched it to John Carpenter, he was like, I grew up watching movies about men in suits. And I don't want to see that. I want to do that. And, he, and the screenwriter felt like that was going to be a hard sell to John Carpenter. Because, uh, you know, it. you're saying like you can't really see the the monster um but obviously john carpenter responded to that idea and he did this great this great uh, this great creature who i think is iconic but yet isn't on like a million posters, hasn't been like memed out like Alien or Jason or Freddy. You know, there's something You're really You're not going to see like
0: some Instagram, like illustration of him on Instagram sipping a coffee and being like, it's right. fall season, bitches. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I want to go back to the tropey tropes. I wanted to get your take on this too. As someone who sees a lot of movies, ensembles are tricky. I love an ensemble movie, um, but I feel like, Oftentimes, when done poorly, an ensemble can become just a uh, like a placeholder for stereotypes uh, and and not really fully fleshed out characters. Right. And in the this, war movie problem. Like
0: we've talked about this. It's yeah. Like, Hi, it's me. I'm Tex and I'm looking at my picture of my wife and now I'm going to die. And we all know it.
3: I'm from Brooklyn and you know what? As long as them <laughs> Dodges are winning, I'm okay with fighting these guys, you know? Uh, but you know, like in this film, you buy these guys. They're, they're not stereotypes. I would say like yeah, everyone's got a little bit of something, but they're not like, Oh, that's the, this and that's the, this, you know, they, they all are, I would say pretty average. And and they are bringing a lot of their personality to it, but I found that to be incredibly refreshing. It wasn't like oh, I'm gonna we're gonna put the camera on this guy and we're gonna get this response. I mean, with the lone exception being like uh, Richard Dysart, who is like from L.A. Law, but uh, he's the older guy there who who actually shoots the Norwegian in the eye. Like he has a little bit of an. Edge or an energy to him as like this leader that they don't really like, but it's still pretty slight. Like you can relate to him; he's not a caricature. And I think oftentimes in horror films, uh, you reduce characters to caricatures because we got to get through them, we got to kill them, and yeah. we got to we got to sympathize with them as quickly as we can. And here, yeah,
0: Skanky Skank's gonna die. Christian yes. Virgin's gonna live. Doofus Boyfriend's gonna sacrifice himself after we hate him for a while. Yeah, all of that. I mean, and I will say like, I think that is one of the blessings and the curses of the thing mm-hmm. is because this is a movie. I don't know if anybody else can do this better than me, but every time I try to remember it in my head and I'm like, who dies and in what order? It's oh, yeah. really hard because I, I that at some point the guys kind of turned into a blur. They kind of merge into like all one giant thing thing. And I just forget who's who. Like I, I, I well, wish sometimes that I had more of a sense of their personalities because when they start getting taken over by the thing, I don't feel like I really know them enough to be like, oh, he's acting weird because I'm like, that's just a guy.
3: Well, let me take you on a detour then with this. Would you argue that Sigourney Weaver gets more play as a great uh, horror icon, action icon from Alien simply because she's a woman and that's what makes her stand out from that cast? Because I think that the same issue is apparent in Alien. Like, they're not incredibly different there either. It's a bunch of men. And when she kind of pops out, I think that she, simply because she's different.
0: I find the alien guys a little bit more memorable because some okay. of them just have those faces. You know, like, you look right. at John Hurt's face and he's so memorable. Like, you, he pops to me. Oh, but, but come
3: on. You got to say Richard Mazer. I mean, he's got a <laughs> face. Uh, you know, one of my favorite guys, Keith David, Wilford Brimley. I mean, these are faces. I mean, yeah, well, Kurt Russell.
0: I mean, part of why they cast well for Brimley is they thought he wasn't a face. You know, like Brimley right. was just this guy who wasn't really an actor at the time. Like Brimley's story is really interesting, honestly, because to me, my Brimley is cocoon. I'm a cocoon girl. Oh,
3: Of course. Me too. Yeah. I mean, that and that uh, ABC show that he did uh, where whenever they cut to commercial, every segment would fill in a piece of the house. And by the end of the episode, every piece of the house had a, a scene from the show. Do You remember that? No. Oh my gosh! I, think I you're watch this every. That up. No, I watch this every Sunday night with my family. It was like our favorite show. Uh, <laughs> it was so. It was so good.
0: No, but I mean, part of why they cast Brimley is. Oh, because... it was
3: called Our House. Of course, Our House. There it is, with Deidre Hall, Chad Allen, and Shannon Doherty. What? Yeah,
0: this is you're having a hallucinogenic spell. It was on for two
3: seasons. It felt like it was on for the life of me, but uh, (laughs) only two seasons.
0: But no, part of why they cast Brimley in this film is because Brimley is this guy who, you know, if you remember his character at all, um, he plays Dr. Blair. He realizes how bad the thing is going to get if it escapes. He is possibly infected. It's a little bit hard. I'd kind of like to talk about that with you later and weigh in on Mm. it. And then they lock him into a shed because he's going crazy and you have to kind of forget that he's there until he emerges and he is infected and he's built a whole ship. And they cast Brimley because they're like, he's so forgettable. Maybe people will forget that he's even in the movie and we can get away with that plot twist. Because at one point, John Carpenter was thinking about casting Donald Pleasance, who, you know, is like his big star from Halloween. But he was like, oh, if I put Pleasance in that role, people are going to be like, Pleasance has to come back, right? Like, you can't just have Pleasance disappear. Like cousins will be back, whereas Brimley, you're like, oh yeah, that guy. This because it is a movie where people die off screen, and like you kind of forget what's happening and where where they go. Well, and it's also that
3: Brimley dude. It's also a movie that I think when you and I are watching it, uh, because we're not seeing it in the theater when it first comes out. We now know these people like Keith David, you know. I know Keith David because I grew up watching Keith David movies, but at this point, this is kind of probably one of his first roles, you know, so it is hard. I, Wilford Brimley, we recognize him now, right? So that is a, it's a hard thing to kind of wrap your head around. Yeah, like but he
0: doesn't even have his mustache really on.
3: No, it, I it, like the way he looks in this movie, yeah. Did
0: you know how cool Wil- Wilford Brimley is, by the way? Because I've always just thought of him as like America's like, you know, sobering grandpa. Yeah. Uh, but Wilfred Bimley, he's a guy who dropped out of school at 14 and started to work as a cowboy. He was like, I'm just going to be a cowboy now. I'm 14 and I would like to be a cowboy. And then when the cowboy thing doesn't quite work out, he becomes a Marine. And then he becomes a stuntman. And then he becomes a bodyguard for Howard Hughes. He becomes a bodyguard for Howard Whoa. Hughes. And then he finally starts acting like really late in the game. You know, This is one of his first movies in the thing. And part of what he has to do is the doctors like handle all this gross stuff. And John Carpenter was like, are you okay picking up all these gross things? And he essentially was like, I used to be a cowboy. And he said, touching these things was just like, quote, picking up my laundry. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, like, also, what's up with Wilfred Brimley's laundry? Like, that Some that makes me think something's really wrong.
3: Well, he's eating all that oatmeal. It's probably just going right through him.
0: <sighs> you really went there. I was like, his socks are gross. And you went. Uh,
3: I went for his dirty, dirty dress.
0: You're really picturing Wilford Brimley in his dirty drawers?
3: <laughs> I always do. I mean, that. I'm just happy to have an outlet to talk about it where it makes sense.
0: This has been your long game. This is your long con. <laughs> uh, like 110 episodes and you're like, here we go.
3: Walmart
2: Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
3: you know, these characters are also so believable in this world, right? Uh, Because they don't look like movie stars. And, you know, even someone like Kurt Russell obviously came up through the Disney route, but he does so much. And we talked about him a little bit in the past, like how he really kind of transforms himself to break that Disney mold. Um, Yeah.
0: I mean, he's clearly the most photogenic out of everybody. Like the way his eyes glow, he looks like, Aslan the Lion in, um, oh, yeah. in, in in Narnia?
3: Oh, he's the best. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm I've dressed up like him for a Halloween one time because it's a great costume. All you need is a beard and get a cool wig. I mean, for me I needed a wig and just get like a hoodie and some goggles, you're set.
0: You know, I bet if I shaved my head and gave it to you, you could be him.
3: Hey, I'll take it. Huh. <laughs> Just people shaving off their, like, locks of love, but just for really better Halloween costumes. I like that idea. Uh,
0: But no, but to your point about, about Alien, I mean, to me, comparing the Alien and Thing, one of the strongest things about Alien is how, even knowing that Sigourney Weaver and, to me, the Orange Cat have become the faces of Alien... When you rewatch it, you're always reminded how slowly she emerges as the star, that it is truly an ensemble piece until she comes forward almost by attrition, you know, that she becomes the person who's like, here's what's happening. Here's what we have to do to survive. But you're not expecting her to step up at the beginning. right? That's the goal of what uh, Bill Lancaster, the writer of The Thing, had for The Thing. Bill Lancaster, by the way, is Burt Lancaster's son. I just learned that now. Oh, wow. And, right? So he knew Hollywood and he knew you know, the shape of good movies, especially movies with like really intense pulp roots like this one. And that was his goal for The Thing, is like have a true ensemble, just like Alien, and then slowly have Kurt Russell emerge as the star. But apparently when they were first doing the edits, um, uh, John Carpenter was just like, this is moving really slowly. And he just slash, 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 cut, 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 and had um, Kurt Russell emerge a lot earlier as the hero to like have somebody pull the audience along.
3: Well, I will say that, you know, there's tons of deleted scenes uh, that you can find online. I mean, just just a treasure trove of them and in many respects i think that they like we talked about in ganja and hess uh they may overstay their welcome as far as giving you too much exposition and and that choice of kind of speeding up the movie i think it probably helps the film the movie is like an hour and 48 minutes but it doesn't feel rushed like the first 40 minutes of the movie are just kind of like Watching these vignettes of these people living there, you're feeling this this life, right? It, nothing truly, I mean, yes, we have this unusual moment in the beginning, which I just absolutely love. The choice to make the pilot Norwegian and coming from a Norwegian camp so they can't understand the warning. It's so beautifully set up. The fact that they literally walk through what will become their, their life. Like I, again, just going back to this Whole idea of this movie just being kind of perfectly constructed, like they walk through the funhouse with the lights on in the first act, and and it doesn't wreck the surprise. It almost it just keeps you on the edge of your seat, like you you see it. I don't I don't know if I can think of any other film like that. Alien certainly isn't like that. Like this shows you everything. Like they know it's an alien from a ship. They know like they get all the info, and everybody here. And this is maybe the other tropey trope thing uh, is smart. Yeah, They're all smart. Like they all are doing their best. They're all doing what I think all of us would do. And I think that that makes you feel comfortable and competent in this film. Uh, so I think, uh, I don't know. I know that you said that he he made it tighter, but uh, to me, I still feel like there's a lot of, that first 40 minutes, there's a lot of room to breathe. They're not like, they're not, they're unraveling the plot at a pace but you still are kind of waiting for this first real kill, that first reveal. I mean, in the dog, you know, in the dog shed.
0: Yeah, I mean, it. you're right. The structure is almost like Macbeth, you know, where Macbeth is like, I want this thing, you know, or well, I guess here it's just like, I want to keep staying alive. And the witches are like, oh, here's what's going to happen. And you're like, no, it's not. And then it absolutely just does. Like, you just watch it play out that kind of, I don't know if it's Schadenfreude exactly because you're not happy that everybody dies. But that I, I really respect films that get a little bit into the element of fate or like, here, here's what is in human nature to do. This is what humans will probably wind up doing. And I can't really call it fate. It's just us. You know, we'll break apart. We won't think completely logically, even though we'll be doing the best we can. And the movie just takes its time so much with all of that. You know, I want to jump back to the very beginning scene with the dog and talk about it. But before I do, like, you know, they don't discover the alien in the snow until – a little bit over 20 minutes into the movie, and the the alien dog doesn't reveal itself until over half an hour into the film. And then it starts moving really fast, but it's still, it's gripping up until that point,
1: you know? Well,
3: I mean, just seeing these two men in a helicopter clearly panicked. You know, they're throwing these uh, grenades or flares, whatever they're throwing at The dog, they're trying to kill this dog. The dog is the sweetest, cutest looking dog. Like, you want to pet this dog. Like, it, it, you know, and, and as somebody who, I guess, is sitting down to watch this movie, you are just as confused as the people in the camp. Obviously, we've seen this movie, so I can't even remember my first reaction to that. And I wish I could, because that is such a dynamic image, this beautiful dog, in the snow running and then you see this helicopter trying to kill it and you don't understand why and you truly don't get any of it and for such a long time
0: i mean i can remember the first time i saw it but i want to set the tone just by even playing the music of the dog scene just to kind of get us in this frosty wintry dog zone The first shot that we see in this film after we watch the spaceship crash land on Earth, it's a dog's eye view of the helicopter. Like when you've seen this film a couple of times, you notice that mm. like you're in a dog view, like the camera's moving a bit. You're looking as you're watching this helicopter come to you. You're you're the thing in the very first shot of this film. And I remember the very first time I watched the thing because it wasn't incredibly long ago. Um, I was so upset because he does that trick john carpenter where you align yourself instantly with the dog you know the oh, number one yeah. rule in films is you're like don't hurt the dog save the cat etc cetera, etc cetera. and you're watching somebody throw grenades at a dog you know throw grenades at a dog and you immediately like i don't even think humans have an instinctual ability to not do this we immediately go that guy's an asshole you know team dog and the dog itself is so perfectly trained and it knows this. I feel like the dog thing knows how humans feel about dogs because as soon as it makes it to the USA camp, it leaps right on. I think it's Clark and it just starts licking Clark and snuggling up to so Clark. And when you watch it the done, second yeah. time, you're like, what a fucking actor. What a treat. Yeah. But that first time you're like that poor dog, you are so with the dog for a really long time.
3: Right. And And because, and I think there's an element of this throughout the whole film, obviously, because someone's foreign and different, they are viewed, I think, as being in the wrong, right? Like, that's, these people are crazy. Like, there's never any thought that the dog might be dangerous, like, right? Because they are the different ones. And this whole movie is about, like, the different, you know, the different ones. And, you know, the original... Uh, I even the book, I think, really came out of this fear of communism, right? This idea of uh, you know, who might be a communist. And you know, we went through that as a as a country, uh, you know, with these hearings of of who's leaning in a direction, who's not patriotic. Um and then, you know, in my research of this film, when this comes out, this is kind of a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic. You know, who has AIDS? They look just like us, but we don't know. And we can't, can we trust that person? You know, sexually, can you trust that person? You know, what, you know, this fear of you look the same. But there's something in your blood. Exactly. And I love that. And I think as we now watch this in 2020, and we're recording this before uh, the election goes on, I still think there's this element of, you know, we all are the same. But we can attack each other. We can go against each other. We can, you know, uh, what do you think? I, I don't feel comfortable telling you what I really think. Or, you know, there's this there's this energy of, like, you're sussing people out. Is this a person that ideologically we agree about certain things? Or is this person that I have to be a little bit more cautious around? Like, you know, so I, I think it's a, just a great metaphor of how we treat people. And then when people are different, how we attack them. And you said before, like, you loved... The fate of it all, uh, and and that like you know that they're doomed to fall into this trap. But I would argue that the fate of mankind is to destroy mankind. Where it, as the alien seems like it's a uniter, right? Not going to unite aliens and humans, but they are working forward together. It's like the Borg uh, mm-hmm. in Star Trek, right? They are they are one, uh, and but where humans don't work together again we go back to the night of the living dead working against each other you know even though they're trapped in this moment you know I, I think it's you know these are the themes that we're always wrestling with like the people who are different but look like us and you know what who do you trust and, and who is right and who's wrong it, it's such a an interesting thing to see come up now uh, a handful of times in the movies that we've we've watched
0: yeah i mean what popped out to me in this watch was kind of a tangent to that which is like who has the power and who's calling the shots and who are we aligning with? Right. It, because, you know, I'll call Kurt Russell in this the hero because or with him the most. He's fairly smart. He lives. So you're sort of like, oh, yeah, he's the hero. He lives. But when you look at what he does beat by beat through the movie, you know, to get his way. He threatens to blow up the entire base and kill everybody. Like, he's carrying dynamite mm. around for a long time. He ties up people next to the thing who are not the thing. He ties them up. They He lets them stay tied while the thing is rampaging around. I mean, there's a lens if you're watching this movie through child's eyes, for sure, where you're like, he's the bad guy. Even though he's not the thing, he's putting all of us in risk. He's bossing everybody around. He's acting like he's just he's just the helicopter pilot. Who is this guy? He's not even supposed to be in charge. But he sees his power through the threat of violence. And then a, such an interesting thing happens during the blood scene, which, of course, is like the centerpiece, you know, where he's like, had everybody give some blood. He shocks or heats up wire and sticks it into blood to see if any of the blood reacts like the thing. I want to listen to a little bit of that, but my let's listen to that now. But my favorite thing about it is that when a person passes the blood test, when they're not the thing, they immediately go from hating McCready and yelling at him to picking up a gun and standing next to him. Like how quickly they are to turn from you're the enemy to I am now holding a gun and I'm ready to shoot somebody else. And that like that look of relief on people's faces and the power is what really popped to me how quickly we are to align ourselves with the people with the gun, once we know that we're allowed. It's a crock
4: of shit.
1: Let's try the doc and Clark. Now Clark.
4: clock was human huh which makes you a murderer don't it palmer now
3: what you just said is so i mean it seems so relevant right in this time that we've been living through and in a time where i feel like a real wedge has been driven between people right like this idea like we are i think we're trying to search for unity but uh These are the issues, I guess, that mankind will always face and whether it is something that is uh, it always is something that's more internal. Right. Because we all are humans. But if it's something like building a wall to keep people out or if it's something like, well, I don't want these people. I mean, really, it's all about building a wall. I want to be with my group of people in my section and 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 we can do that invisibly we can do that visibly we can do that on a grand scale we can do that on a small scale you know uh it's something that we are always going to wrestle with because i think you know very much like social media we want to be in our own vacuum right we want to hear what we want to hear how we want to hear it and uh and we're getting further and further away from like a true dialogue of different ideas, and that—that's you know this idea of aligning yourself so much and immediately being like, "I'm going to switch over here now." And now I'm over here, like it's blind. It's almost a blind alignment, like you just described. I, uh, you're kind of yeah. Just, I Just I see this le- movie on so many more levels now. Uh, you know, talking about it like this.
0: Me too, and it's interesting because there's there are moments where I think this film really clearly states some kind of a thesis but i don't think it does it that often you know it's not trying to hammer home to you the questions that it wants you to ask itself i mean when i think about moments where this film is like here's what we're about here's our theme one of the ones that really pops out to me is uh this little speech that mccready gives about like who we are and what's inside of us
1: i know i'm human If you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won.
0: I don't know if this speech has ever hit me as hard as it did in this rewatch. This idea of of the parts of us that we don't want to show, you know? Mm. This it, it to me it felt like a speech about are there fascists under the surface? You know, and like who's in, who's who's not going to stand up and say their beliefs yet, but they might later.
3: Yeah, I see that. I also see a movie and maybe not in the speech per se, but I see a movie that is struggling with identity. Like, you know, how do I prove to you that I am this? Right. Like and and we could talk about that through the way that people want to identify as themselves, right? Like they, I think that people are forced to, you know, like have to explain themselves. If you're, you know, somebody who is trans or, uh, or non-binary, like you are kind of put through this gauntlet too, which is so I think there's another level of this as well. Like, uh fighting for something that you know is true about yourself.
0: Well, yeah. And the idea of wondering who you are in extreme moments, Mm. you know, thinking of that blood scene again and the relief on people's faces, like, I've always had this question in my life, like, who will I be when something gets really bad? You know, and I I think a lot of us, if you've had more or less comfortable lives, you know, we're not entirely sure what we, like, I don't know what I would do if I was in a fight. I've never been in a fight and I've never mm-hmm. known who I would be in that situation or I've never known who I'll be when the, if, or when like the leadership of my government completely runs down, will I be like whining about it on Twitter or will I do something about it? And, and so there is that element of like, I'm afraid sometimes when I look into my chest, like, what if I'm a coward, you know? And, and I feel like I can identify with that, like, with with those expressions on those faces, like okay, at least I've been tested and I know who I am. Like, who am I really? Okay, I have some. I have some idea now.
3: Well, I kind of see it differently. I see it in the way that we are so positive in our belief, and you know, there's no way to prove that your belief is right or wrong, right? Like, ultimately, uh, I mean, you know, for every article that says one thing, there's another article that says something else, right? Uh, but we are so passionate, and if someone could say to you. You know, and this could go with religion. This could go with politics. This can go with, truthfully, anything that, you know, has a gray area. Like, this is definitive proof. You are right or you are wrong. Like, these people are saying, I am not this. I know I am not this. And then they go, okay. Yeah, you're right. Like, And I think that there are so many religions and cults that are built on the idea of giving you those tools. Like, hey, we actually know we have the test that says you are this and you are not this. You know, I, I think that, and this is probably a very, I, I this is a, a whole tunnel to go down, but I'll just say it simply, I, I believe, and I often think about uh, uh, Scientology as being incredibly effective because they take the tenets of, uh, psychology and religion, and then they, uh, gamify them. We can get to this level. You are better. Now you've done the work you are at the, like, it takes that invisible part of, of therapy and religion and, and puts you in a position where you're like, I have achieved. Right. And I think that that's what pulls people in. They want to be told I'm this it's, it's why we all look for love. Like this person loves me for me, this person, you know, it's like, we want this acceptance uh, and when someone does tell us like, yes, you are worthy, uh, it's a relief because we know that we're worthy. And then uh, we, we won, you know, so there's some there's some battle there. So I, I looked at it like that, like this kind of an, uh, a definitive way of saying you. Yes, your belief is correct. Like, you know, which I think we all are looking for, you know, for everyone out there who denies climate change, all they want is definitive proof that they're right. And for everybody who believes that climate change, like, I know it's true. Like, but there's this weird middle ground where, you know, people are on their own sides. There's no definitive there is, but there is no way to kind of convince everybody that it is one thing.
0: Wow. I love that you took it there because I was thinking so concretely about it as well. You know, more just like. If, if you've ever gotten like a COVID test, you right. know, it's like that kind of day of waiting of like, I don't think I have it, but do I have it? And mm-hmm. then you get the test or the text back and it's like, you're fine. And you're like, oh, great. And that that moment of relief and, and even the idea of like, what are we willing to sacrifice for the common good? Like, are we willing to quarantine ourselves, which seems to be. One way of interpreting Dr. Blair, Wilfred Brimley's behavior, you know, like when he does that computer simulation and he's like, oh man, if this thing gets out, the entire world is dead. The entire world is going to be assimilated. And he starts smashing things and destroying the helicopters. You know, to me, I want to, I want to believe that that's him just being like, we need to commit to all just dying because this thing can't survive. But then I guess there's also the reading of like, he's the thing and he wants to keep everybody there as well. I, I, mean, I cannot honestly tell when he becomes the thing.
3: Like no, and I think that that's the whole idea of the movie. No one knows because if it does its job effectively, you don't know. And I think that that's the fun of the movie. It is the villain is constantly changing, and there's no way to know. Like when we watch, uh, you know, Friday the Thirteenth. We know when that, you know, we know when we see the footprints or we see the knife that something bad's going to happen. Here, it can just turn. Like that dog scene is, a, again, a beautifully done. But I will say to your thought about Kurt Russell being the villain, right at the top of the movie, this film lays it on the table. They go, This is who he is. And this is how he solves problems. You watch him play chess. He is cocky, he is confident, I got this figured out, he realizes that he doesn't, he's like, you cheated to the computer, and then pours his drink in it, blowing up the computer. Like, that is a metaphor for the movie. We got this under control, okay, we don't have it under control, now I'm going to blow the whole thing up. Like, yeah. we got it. I don't want right out
0: gracefully. If I lose, it is a pirate victory for
3: everybody. Yeah, and I think that, again, this movie does such a great job at that foreshadowing. It's like, there's, he is acting in character. Like, if that's how, like, he destroys a piece of entertainment, right? That chess machine, which seemed like, what a waste of money. That computer only plays chess. But um he destroys that whole machine because of, you know, he felt slighted. Uh, By the way, uh, just, if anyone is a chess fan out there, that board is completely bunk there's it's awful uh, apparently uh no continuity no chess players on set that does not work at all
0: <laughs> i mean if this was my thing movie i would be one of the guys i would be like i don't know palmer and i'd say like but why did you destroy one of our only forms of entertainment we are still stuck up here forever i will destroy you because you have taken away the only thing that i had to play a game with i mean we we I, the Poor, poor Hal in 2001, machine, like, killed everybody because he was mad about chess. Like, chess is serious. You can't screw with somebody's chess game, man.
3: Well, I mean, I think that chess is this metaphor of, you know, keeping mentally tough. Like, it's just, you can't just use force with any of these things. You know, Hal, you can't use force with. he's a computer he's stronger than you uh, you know uh, you you can't use force with the thing you can destroy the thing and you can use elements of force but you have to outsmart it right it has to be outsmarted it's not just an animal the animal you know like and there's something really interesting about keeping this creature more animalistic than humanoid too which I love um, by the way I know I talked about that thing about Tron at the top of the the show about computer effects cheating. But these effects still work, by the way. They look great. Like American Werewolf in London, too. Like, they still get a visceral, like, watching them. Like, oh, God. It really, like, way better than anything I would have seen CGI created.
0: No, I agree. I agree. I absolutely adore the special effects here. I mean, they're incredible. Like, the person who did them is incredibly young. Did you know this? This guy, his name was Rob Bottied. And he is- fascinating I guess he's kind of like the Wilford Brimley of working in special effects because he, when he was 14 he stopped going to all of his high school classes because he won he became the protege of Rick Baker you know the okay. absolute yeah, yeah, yeah. famous special effects makeup artist so at 14 he's working with Rick Baker and he's too young to even be allowed to like be on the set from MGM so Rick Baker would just let him work on stuff in his own garage. And he was just like making these things. He tells this story of working with Rick Baker on um, the Star Wars cantina scene, but they weren't even allowed to use, um, to read the full Star Wars script yet. So they were just doing this cantina scene and he thought it sounded really dumb. Um, But yeah, this kid is like born and bred in the world of doing, you know, really fascinating special effects. Like he worked for Roger Corman for a while as well, which he got really sick of because all Corman would ask him to do was like, put on monster costumes and then rip off girls clothes. And he was like, there has to be more to life than this. (laughs) And so he meets, he meets um, John Carpenter, I think on the fog, he helps make a lot of the creepy pirates that exist. I think he even plays one of the pirates. And so he's like, I think 22 or 23 when he becomes responsible for the biggest budget of his own personal career, making all of the monsters for the thing. And he, Goes a little bit crazy. Like he said that at night he would have these dreams where a guy named Tootsie Potts would tell him in his sleep how he was going to create different special effects that they would just come to him overnight oh, and then wow. he would make them real. And he worked like nonstop. I mean, he was sleeping on the set. He was not going home at all. He was just like taking, I don't know, like microwave bubblegum and mayonnaise and cream cord and building 15 mechanical dogs. And he finally had... A Pretty much a nervous breakdown is what everybody has said because he was working so hard on creating just the craziest, coolest, never-before-seen stuff ever for this film.
3: You know that he also cost the film $25,000. He got a special effects credit at the film's end, and that was an improper use of titles. Like, they gave him a special credit on this movie that was not approved. And so uh, that was, like, I don't know who is in charge of titles but universal gave him a wrong credit so they were fined twenty five thousand dollars for giving him uh the credit that is in the closing the closing (laughs) credits
0: I love that. I mean, I also want to give a um, shout out to one of the women who also worked on the film. Like there are, there's basically no women who worked on this film, like in front of the camera or behind the camera. I think at one point there was maybe a a script supervisor, but she got pregnant um, during shooting and then she had to leave. And then after that, there were like no women on set, except for, I think this girl, her name was Margaret Becerra. She was a cosmetology um, expert. And so she was the person who like, painted everything. She painted everything to look super gross. And it was um, her and Rob's idea that like the blood, for example, that's inside the thing would not be red necessarily. It would be like greenish yellow. It would look supernatural. It would be so bizarre and strange, but it took her a year to get everything painted as grisly and wonderful and perfect as it was. In fact, they used so much KY jelly that I kind of want to just let somebody who was on set talk about it because it's a lot.
4: I went to visit Rob on the set. He wanted me to help shoot uh, some tests that he was doing of his vibrating dog. And I think when I got there, there were so many five-gallon pails of KY jelly all over the place that it's like my, my impression of the film was, gee, I, I never knew that you could, like, buy KY jelly in, in, you know, five-gallon pails and have so many of them, you know, in, in any one place. You know, they they used so much of it, I believe, on all of on all of his creatures. But that, that's kind of what I think of when I when I you know think of working on the film.
3: Oh my goodness, that that is. I mean, you hear about gallons of blood being used in you know big horror films, but that wow, the smell on set must have been intense.
0: <laughs> no, I mean I love hearing all of the stories about how they made these props. Like, in fact, I, I want to play another one. Actually, this is from. um The actor who played Norris, you know, and Norris is the guy who gets like his head torn off and it starts creeping around and crawling upside down. He's the one whose chest bursts in, which they actually did. Um, Rob Bottin managed to find a man who had lost both of his arms. He was a double uh, amputee from industrial accident. And so he pulled off that trick where the doctor shoves his hands into the chest and the chest bites off the hands by having a person without hands do it so that the, the mechanical mouth could just, like, bite off the fake hands and he could pull back and have stumps. Um, oh, wow. But they were so detailed. And I think only um, Hallahan, the actor himself, can really capture how, how crazy it was to be that person.
4: I, I must confess, I, I think I spent about 10 days with them, all told. Uh, They molded my face in a lot of different uh, expressions. They molded my hands, my legs, my torso. Uh, They even took photographs of my chest without a shirt on. And they assigned one person to make the hair pattern match. And it was so good that the day we shot the sequence of my chest exploding, I was inside the examining table that my body was supposed to be lying on. So that my head was out. It was really my head, my neck, my shoulders, and my arms everything else was the model and uh, Richard Dicehart is an old pal of mine played the doctor the medical doctor came in that morning and I was already in the harness and he said put some clothes on that guy for God's sakes disgusting and he came running over and it wasn't until he was right on top of me that he realized that was fake it was so incredible when I see the picture I know what my chest hair pattern looks like from looking at myself in the mirror for 50 years I'm shocked how
0: accurate it is. By the way, like we cannot celebrate the special effects in this movie without celebrating just the audio special effects, too. I mean, the monster sounds in here, it's like they just... I mean, they're really continuing what they did in King Kong. You know, they really wanted organic animal sounds. So when you listen closely to the screams, they're using, like, bird calls and pig squeals and human screams, and they're, like, remixing them, speeding them up, turning them inside out, chopping and screwing all these actual ones. Uh, I just... You know, I kind of even just want to hear like the spider thing yell right now because it is so good. Say like my favorite bit of um special effects sound that they did it's in the dog scene you know when the dog kind of splits open like a dog banana yeah oh yeah uh, and you have all of those dogs just like freaking out in the background uh, maybe i'll describe how they did it and then you can hear and just be like oh yeah that's exactly what it is uh okay. the sound designer for that he took a recorder and he put it in his living room and he had his kids go around the neighborhood and ask everybody in their neighborhood if they could borrow their dog. And so he took everybody's dog in the neighborhood and he put them in his living room and he turned on the tape recorder and then he put on a trench coat and a hat and he went around the outside of his own house and started rattling doorknobs and knocking on windows. And he just listened to the dogs in the house go insane to start losing their minds, pack mentality, basically acting like the humans in The Thing, but about a dog freaked out about an invader.
3: You know, while we're talking about some technical aspects of this film, too, this movie did a couple of things that were really interesting. I think the quote that is often attributed to John Carpenter, which people may give people some pause, is when they ask him, like, you know, what horror director does he look up to or who does he, you know, view himself as? He he says Howard Hawks. And I, I think he said that mm-hmm. numerous times and, you know, and as a matter of fact, the the opening of the film, that uh, the way the screen kind of uh, dissolves and the and the word the thing comes up, that is uh, very much an homage to uh, a Howard Hawks film, right? That like that animation cell, like with the smoke fish tank there, that that you know really kind of cool. Like, um, but it's interesting that John Carpenter compares himself to this director who we talked about Howard Hawks. We love Howard Hawks, you know, uh, but, you know, has, has made movies that, I mean, primarily towards the end of his career, uh, more kind of cowboy films like Rio Bravo and uh, El Dorado and Rio Lobo, uh, but also made these Big musicals and comedies like Gentlemen for Blondes and Monkey Business. Um, one of my ultimate favorites is uh, Ball of Fire, which I love. Mm, Gary Cooper yeah. and Barbara Stanwyck so good. But, you know, again, His Girl Friday, uh, Only Angels Have Wings, Bringing a Baby. Like Howard Hawks and John Carpenter. Like, let's talk about that. Like, do you see that? I, I don't know if I see it. Um, I love both of them. Um, I kind of
0: do I mean like where I see it honestly is I think that Howard Hawks is somebody that now like you know in the year of our thing uh, Mm -hmm. in the 21st century we're able to say like he was a great director like he was interesting he was fun he was brilliant he did really good work but I think if you were around at the time when Howard Hawks was making films you'd be like oh he's really good but you wouldn't think of him as like a don't know an auteur he was like a Okay, guy, a working director, like he worked, he made a lot of films. I don't know if you'd say they necessarily had like a stamp, except for the fact that he liked really smart, interesting women, which he
3: put in, in a bunch of his films. So but almost like he was a director for hire who exceeded the expectations of a director for hire. Like he made everything better, but he didn't have that like kind of ownership of like a true auteur in the time. Is that kind of like how you're... And then he becomes
0: one of those people who, you know, kind of like Hitchcock, gets elevated by French French, um, artists in the 60s who are like, this guy makes terrific films. You know, he deserves to be given more respect as an artist and as a creator. And then the generation that John Carpenter is in, they're the generation that's watching his movies all the time on TV. And so the thing from another world becomes this like big touchstone for the Carpenter generation. And he... I guess he gets assimilated into the movie making of the next generation from people who he really Mm -hmm. heavily influenced. And I think we have a lot of the same thing happening with Carpenter, you know, because if you were around when Carpenter was making his films, especially beginning in like the seventies and eighties, you'd be like, oh, he makes really interesting stuff, but he's not the Carpenter then that I think we talk about today. You know, like now we're like Carpenter, you know, he's a guy like he is almost ascended into that rank of like major heavyweight (laughs) director. It's like I mean, it takes he, us he, a beat, I think, to turn our really good genre filmmakers into Titans. And so I think that is where they get along. They're both really efficient, practical, right. good, smart, really down to entertain. And they don't quite get the respect they are due at the time.
3: Well, it's interesting because I think John Carpenter, you know, his claim to fame is that he makes Halloween in 1978 for like $300,000, you know, or something like that. And it makes 70 million, you know, uh, And, you know, he's this kind of do-it-yourself, but he's cool, right? There's something really interesting about him because he doesn't seem to take himself um, incredibly... Like, he just seems like a... I think there's a lot of posing a lot of the times. And we've talked about these big directors, these big personalities and how they run a set and, and how they treat people. And I haven't really found that much about John Carpenter that he, oh, and actually he's a dick and he's a control freak and he's a this. He seems to be just a guy who wants to smoke cigs and make music and make cool shit and uh, and just go and do. And, you know, I love, there's a great, Robert Rodriguez did this amazing series on El Rey where he interviewed uh, John Carpenter and it's just John Carpenter just smoking a cigarette, basically saying, I wanted to play video games. That's why I stopped playing, uh, you know, making movies. And now I make my music. And he's he tours around doing his music, which is great. By the way, is like the only film that he didn't score. And Morricone uh, scored that.
0: Yeah, although it sounds like Carpenter scored it just because Ennio uh, was trying to make it sound like, him, like John Carpenter because John Carpenter has such a distinctive synth sound. So it's incredibly possible to listen to this movie and not even know that Carpenter didn't score it.
3: I know it's interesting because it's like it does sound like Carpenter, but then when I saw his name, I was like, wait, what? And did you know that it was nominated for a Razzie Award for the worst score?
0: I mean, that's insane. It it will and kind of springboarding off of that, I mean, you've heard this score again because
3: I know. You know where I'm going with this? I do, yeah. Because, but tell uh, us well,
0: Quentin Tarantino, when he made the hateful eight, which when you think about it really is The thing in the in the West in the frontier, you know, a group of guys, very suspicious, uh, surrounded by snow, wondering who's the killer, who's the betrayer. Kurt Russell is also in it, (laughs) and um, he reached out. Uh, You know, uh, Enya Maracón did the film, did the music for that, and um, Quentin Tarantino. Um, found out through conversation that Enyo had music for the thing that he didn't get to use because Carpenter only kind of picked and choose, chose some of the stuff and then actually wrote some of his own music in it as well. So he gave his unused music and some of his used music to Quentin to play in the film.
3: And won an Oscar. So there you go. Uh, same <laughs> score so the getting thing nominated. he
0: to Oscar.
3: You know, I love that you brought up Hateful uh, eight, eight because, you know, I think. I have a mixed opinion on Hateful Eight. Uh, I like Quentin Tarantino's work a lot. We've talked about it a lot on the show. That movie, I think, does suffer from from pace a little bit. Like what we talked about with John Carpenter, kind of tightening it up and 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 driving it forward. Like the second act, when I saw it in the theater, you had there was a break, uh, which was I'm a big fan of that for any long movie. Like, give me a break to go to the bathroom. Um, But so I can drink as much soda as possible. Uh, But, you know, uh, there, I I think the second act or the second after intermission is so much more engaging. And I've heard that the version that he cut for Netflix, where it's almost chapterized like a miniseries, actually works really well. I think that Quentin Tarantino, in a weird way, may have misedited that movie. And that's a big statement for me to make. But I, I like there's something about it. Because it is a very similar story, but I feel like it it's lethargic at points. It's almost too much like existing in a room.
0: I can hear that. I mean, I think I'm one of the Hateful Eight's biggest champions because okay. there's something about that film that feels, I guess, kind of like a snow globe of being alive right now. To me, mm. it feels like you took all of the tensions of being an American and wondering what your place is in our own history with each other as citizens of this country and you distill it and put everybody in a frozen snow globe and shake it up and see what happens. And so it has this almost like, I think, airless time capsule quality to it, where I think that film is really going to grow on us as we hopefully get some distance from this era and get to look back on it and try to make more sense of what we all live through.
3: You know, and that's a good point. Look, I I really have only given it one one shot, one and a half shots. Um, and I, I mean, look... I walk out and this is a I'm a Quentin Tarantino fan, so I'm not saying it was bad, uh, but I think it's worth maybe watching again, especially after living through this. I, I always believe that like a director like uh, like Quentin Tarantino, like that stuff does age as well as John Carpenter's stuff, uh, Howard Hawks. You know, it's like they're they are putting in the work to make sure that these things uh, that they, they you know, that they last to, to test of time.
0: Yeah. I mean there's a real timeless quality to it. And you know, if you are a big Carpenter head, you probably don't need me to say that um even when you watch Halloween, there's a little bit of the thing from another world in that movie. In fact, I'm going to play a tiny clip. This is from the this is from the moment in Halloween where um the girl gets killed in the laundry room and you can see that the kid is watching the thing from another world on TV. In fact, even when um, John Carpenter was like preparing to make this version of the thing, his own version of the thing, um, he was thinking about making another version of another Howard Hawks film, which would be like his third Howard Hawks film. He was going to do Only Angels Have Wings. But when this version of the thing flopped, they're like, you don't get to make
3: Only Angels Have Wings,
0: which is kind of a bummer. But have you seen the Howard Hawks version of the thing?
3: No, I actually haven't. But I've heard it's amazing.
0: It is so fun. I will be honest, I might even prefer it to this version of The Thing a little bit. It is really good, but it is very, 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 very different. I mean, on the one hand, yes, like the guy who is The Thing in that movie is just like some tall dude in a suit. And when they try to explain his properties, it is ridiculous. I just need to play you this clip right now of their doctor explaining who The Thing is. we find
1: it has a sugar bean. Please, doctor, I've got to yes, ask this. Scott, It sounds like, well... Just as though you're describing some form of super-carrot. That's nearly right, Mr. Scott. This carrot, as you call it, has constructed an aircraft... ...capable of flying some millions of miles through space. Propelled by a force as yet unknown to us. An intellectual carrot. The mind boggles. Shouldn't. Imagine how strange it would have seemed during the Pliocene age... ...to forecast that worms, fish, lizards that crawled over the Earth... ...were going to evolve into us. Look, Doctor. on the planet from which our visitor came, vegetable life underwent an evolution similar to that of our own animal life, which would account for the superiority of its brain. Doctor, its character. development was not handicapped by emotional or sexual factors.
3: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I, I need to see carrot. this. <laughs> super carrot. I mean, you can
0: understand why John Carpenter's like, I don't think a super carrot is going to fly in 1982. Yeah. Like, what that version of the thing starts targeting... I actually appreciate – it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, Frankenstein because that version of the thing in Howard Hawks, it's once again more of a conversation about science versus military might. So the doctor that you hear in that version, he kind of starts aligning himself with the thing. There's no assimilation and he doesn't get taken over, but he knows where the thing is and he doesn't quite tell people and he tries to befriend the thing that doesn't go incredibly well. But it feels more like the 50s are wrestling with that idea of our scientists are creating – well, atomic bombs. Our scientists, right. I can we trust them to do the right thing. And it puts a lot of faith into military men, probably more than probably more than you might like now. Um, but it's a really good film. And also there's like some great women in there, which, you know, of course are missing very much from our version of the thing. There's a really fun secretary who's kind of a love interest, but also just smart as hell. Um, and then there's a a female chef. So you know that when John Carpenter and Bill Lancaster were making their mm-hmm. version it wasn't like they were um, saying to themselves, this is an all-male story. They're like, we're going to make it an all-male story on purpose, it, which I think is kind of the bummer. Like, I don't know. I've heard a couple of different arguments about why they did that. Like one of them, the argument that I find the most compelling and the argument that I want to believe is that John Carpenter was making this version of the thing really as a study of maleness. Like, what is it like when you only have men? Like it men specifically, like men... Do men in their, perhaps, like, inability to talk about their feelings or reach out when they need help, does that make the situation in Antarctica worse? Which, if that is what he's exploring, I, I think that's really interesting.
3: Yeah, well, I think that goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Like, this idea that, like, man will turn on itself in an attempt to save itself instead of work together. Which is, again, coming back to this whole idea.
0: I would like that to be true. And I think I can convince myself in, in, in my heart that it is true. But I also think part of it is that, you know, Lancaster who wrote the script. He said that he just didn't want women because he thinks that love stories always interrupt the action. And he said that, quote, broads are gratuitous. So instead of writing broads, he wrote a blow up doll that Kurt Russell plays with a little bit. But the blow up doll all got mostly got edited out. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, I but there's mean, apparently a big role for a female blow up
3: doll. Well, look, you say no females in the film, but uh, I direct you back to the computer. Um, that voice is a female voice uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and representative of the aliens. So yeah, anyway. She's uh, a
0: cheating bitch who gets whiskey poured on her. I mean, I'll take the whiskey. <laughs> she's also voiced by John Carpenter's wife at the time.
3: I guess, you know, there is something about machismo, right? And And there is data, true data. That proves that if women were in more elected positions, they are more prone to compromise and compromise in in a way that is about working together instead of working apart. And, you know, that's something that uh, my wife, June, uh, wrote in this book, uh, Represent, uh, which is all about running for office the, the power of women in political office because they don't fall victim to some of those traps. And, uh not that anyone was thinking this big i think it probably was like it's uh you know an arc stations put them there or whatever you know like what you said they, it wasn't as well thought out but i do think that this story would be different with uh with a bunch of women like i, I they which by the way let's remake the thing like that maybe they're smarter uh, and they can figure out a way to actually work together and be a more powerful foe i don't know
0: you know you could do that pretty uh, easily i think because i think their new strategy for um i don't know if it's nasa anymore or space force i don't know but they're trying to send up crews of all-female astronauts to see how that works you know do women get along better when it's all-female crews so there is an opening to see what an i like that female crew well, like do. i said
3: there is literal proof that women work better together than uh than men um and,
0: and plus i think honestly like there's a whole um new fear of the thing you know because if mm-hmm. you've been reading the news lately Now that our ice caps are melting, there's um, the realization that inside of our ice caps, you know, inside these huge glaciers that you have in the thing where we have alien ships that have been there for a gazillion years, there's all sorts of diseases, old and new diseases, different mutations and permutations that as they melt, it's going to be like, congrats, here's a new smallpox.
3: By the way, this is why I love doing this podcast with you because I was going to talk about how there's an element of this in what happened in 2016 in Siberia when the permafrost started melting. Anthrax was released into the atmosphere, right? And it started to kill all these animals. People were getting sick and they were they had to deal with this. Uh, like it was 2,000 reindeer uh, were killed, right? And 13 people were sickened. Um, and they had to go through such great lengths to kill this this disease that's been hidden underneath the surface literally you know underneath the surface um uh burning and collecting is like just an interesting idea i was thinking about it i'm reading this book uh called uh cast and uh and it's it was in there and so it just kind of put my my brain together on both of the things but i like this idea that you don't even know that it's coming up but it's been there it's been frozen under the ground the entire time I wanted to talk about the end. Um, do you find the end to be ambiguous? This is a big uh, conversation online. And I, I guess I, I will tell you why I'm asking this in a second.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's just kind of recap the facts, right, of what we've got mm-hmm. at the end. You know, if people haven't seen it in a while, you have um big showdown <laughs> against, like, the Blair thing. Uh, some people die. Some people disappear. You have Kurt Russell make it. Not to safety, but at least away. And there's a beat where you're like, he's the only survivor. And then you have Childs, and Childs shows up. And the two men sit next to each other. They haven't been getting along very well. In some of the footage that got cut out, they were fighting a lot, even more than what we get to see on screen. And they have this conversation.
4: Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though.
1: Neither there, will we?
4: How will we make it?
1: Maybe we should. If you're worried about me... If we've got any surprises for each other... I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well... What do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens.
0: And they have kind of a chuckle. It's like their Casablanca ending. Like, well, that happened. And now it's just the two of us. And what do we do? And then the movie ends. And you don't know, as the audience, do they survive? Is one of them going to kill the other one? Are they going to freeze to death? Are they going to get rescued? What's going to happen?
3: Well, I mean, the original ending, as shot, I believe, and I believe that they have two versions of it, uh, was that they were rescued. They made it back to civilization. And John Carpenter didn't really like that because he felt it was like it was too much of a like happy ending for this film. There's this rumor that circulated online said that Child's was clearly the thing, because if you look at the end, there's no um, steam coming out of his mouth. Like, you know, it, like it, that's not true. Um, yes, John Carpenter did give the rights uh, to the thing and approved a video game adaptation that continued the story of these two characters and showed that they both were not uh, infected. But then John Carpenter's had like kind of taken that back, you know, uh, but there's a lot of debate of what the ending was. And as recently as November 23rd, 2012, he tweeted, yes, one of them was a thing. Now, I guess the way I looked at the ending was... Or
0: did he tweet it? Or did somebody assimilate and take his keyboard Ooh, login
3: and tweet it? I like that. I guess the way I see it is they, they did it. They killed the thing. But at what cost? Because in killing it they're essentially giving themselves a death sentence mm-hmm. and that to me felt like a much more powerful uh and in tone and in and in theme ending of the film it just it just felt to me like that's what this movie is saying is like yep they're right but what do you have left nothing you are left with nothing right and you destroyed everything because you were so focused on on being right. And uh, look, I I know we're talking about a lot of different things here, but I, I probably would have done the same thing. But I like that end. It's like, and you are alive for what? You'll just die here in the cold. And, uh, but you know, so I. But something
0: beautiful. You've also saved the world. You didn't. I mean, to me, the lamest example, oh God, it's like Justin Turner coming out and, and hanging out and taking his pictures with the Dodgers when they win the world series. Like you win, you escape like, oh, I'm Kurt Russell. And look, there's an extra helicopter I didn't know about. And then he shows up in Juneau, Alaska or something and everybody dies.
3: No, absolutely. I think, you know, the greater good is there. And I believe that Kurt Russell's character is at least edited to show that that's the reason why he's doing this. Like he's not doing it to be like, I need to win and get out of here, uh, but if they would have worked together, I mean, and is it possible to work together? You know, I mean, they said something in the movie that really made me gave me pause. Like when they were nervous about the disease and how it would be transmitted. I mean, if they just wore masks, Amy. No, uh, they they were talking about like how they need to prepare food now, and they only have to eat out of cans, and they, you know, they they were talking about this kind of prep work because they didn't know how it was spreading. So it's just interesting. Like maybe they could have been more proactive, and maybe they could have saved themselves. Um, Which is, you know, so much of what we're having this conversation of right now.
0: I have to say, I don't know if anybody else has this glitch in their brain, but every time the thing, um, the characters in the thing talk about the nearest base, every time they say McMurdo, the base, the base that is down there in Antarctica, I always think they're saying McMurdo. And then I always think of the Werner Herzog documentary Encounters at the End of the World. Have you seen that?
3: No. Oh, oh is that the one where they go over the, the, the waterfall?
0: No, 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 no. Right. This is like a more recent one where he goes to Antarctica. He's hanging out with the guys at the base. He's almost making a documentary about like, do people go crazy in situations okay. like this? What's really happening under the ice? It's a beautiful film. And I kept thinking about it because, you know, Herzog says McMurdo, but just it clearly sounds like McMurdo to him. And I wanted to play a little clip of that documentary if people haven't seen it because he gets into the idea of... Antarctic madness, but he talks about it not only with humans, he talks about it with penguins.
1: Is there such thing as insanity among penguins I try to avoid the definition of insanity or derangement. I don't mean that uh, a penguin might believe he, he or she is Lenin uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. But uh, could they just go crazy because they've had enough of their colony? One of these disoriented or deranged penguins showed up at the New Harbor diving camp, already some 80 kilometers away from where it should be. for the humans are do not disturb or hold up the penguin stand still and let him go on his way and here he's heading off into the interior of the vast continent with 5,000 kilometers ahead of him he's heading towards certain death
0: okay they're really fun and I just I love that he's like the penguin is insane.
3: I wanted to also, you know, not to bring it down on a note, I, I also thought, you know, I talked earlier about Howard Hawks and how he's known for comedies and musicals, that that maybe The Thing is kind of a perfect musical. And uh, when I typed that into YouTube, I found out that somebody else agreed to. What? Josh, play this. You can pick up an axe and go crazy, but I can grow legs from my head. So I might be MacReady or maybe I'm Doc that's been acting suspicious, Black Gary's a liar.
4: Be sure to watch Clark and well, he's just delicious.
3: <laughs> just a little taste there. You can just type in The Thing, the musical there. Um, I love it wow. so much.
0: Oh, man, that makes me want to do a celebrity version of The Thing, because I do feel like to be the one part of, of that's lacking is I want the emotional engagement of me trying to guess who's The Thing with any sort of evidence or proof. Which I I don't. Oh, have I mean, it's mafia. Like, it's
3: Among Us. Have you played Among Us yet?
0: No, but I was just thinking, like, oh. I want to do a version of the thing where it would be like Frank Sinatra, and you'd be asking yourself, Is Frank Sinatra really acting like Frank Sinatra? Is Frank <laughs> Sinatra acting a little un-Sinatra? You know, and, and you could have the exact same script, but if it was personas I knew anything about, then, then at least I could, I would be invited to play.
3: I like that. There is a great board game that uh, came out recently. I think it was Mondo that put it out called Thing, the board game. And it's uh, the official game and you get to, you know, one person is the thing and kind of moving around and killing. It's really a a fun, cool game. Um, We talked a little bit about how people reacted to this movie. But did you pick a review that kind of uh, really captured everything that we've been talking about?
0: Well, it was really hard because everybody hated the thing. Like, right. everybody hated The Thing. So it was really hard just to narrow down who hated The Thing the most. Um, I decided to go with the the venerable gray lady with the New York Times' Vincent mm. Canby. Uh, this is what he wrote. John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 1980s a virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory-concocted special effects with the actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated, finally to be eaten and then regurgitated as, guess what, more laboratory-concocted special effects. There may be a metaphor in all of this, but I doubt it. Like all such movies wow. that don't trust themselves to keep an audience interested by legitimate dramatic means, The Thing shows us too much of The Thing too soon and now has no place to go. It plods in circles from one mock horror effect to the next. It's entertaining only if one's needs are met by such sights as those of a head walking around on spider-like legs. Autopsies on dogs and humans in which the innards explode to take on other, not easily identifiable forms. Hand severings, immolations, worm-like tentacles that emerge from the mouth of a severed head, or two or more burned bodies fused together to look like spare ribs covered in barbecue sauce. He's saying all of that like it's bad, but I think that sounds great.
2: I mean, um, and then he cool.
0: closes by saying the thing which opens today at the Rivoli and other other theaters, is too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk.
3: oh wow, great lady, uh, lady. like great lady no. I know this is your I know this is your gig, Amy, like to the, the reviewers and talking about the reviewers, but I also found one that I wanted to throw at you as well, which was Siskel and Ebert. My uh, shining light, uh, who uh, Ebert called the movie a barf bag movie, <laughs> a barf bag <laughs> movie. He, he said it's uh, it's inferior to films like Alien, but Siskel loved it. He praised the atmosphere and the fear and the paranoia. And uh, what was so interesting about it, it was very rare for Siskel to like a, a, a thriller, and Ebert to hate one. So this movie divided these two, but divided them in, a, in an odd way, which I, I thought was kind of a, a, a fun footnote.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because when you read a bunch of these reviews, the impression you get is that the gore effects were just so good gross It's so shocking to audiences at the time that they really almost couldn't even see the rest of the film. Like, they couldn't see the film
3: for the blood. They're leaving with that image in their head, and they're not remembering anything else, which goes to your point, which is the characters aren't maybe as... Look, I'm having a hard time. I watched the movie last night. Like, it's not like I can... I can talk about all the characters. I mean, one of the, the Kurt Russell's character, you know, had this whole backstory that never got in the movie. I mean, it was like, he was a Vietnam War helicopter pilot who was involved in a tragedy and uh, felt disgraced by his service. And he suffered some PTSD and alcoholism and severe insomnia. That's why he uh, was able to hear the dogs whining. But we don't get any of that. And weirdly, I don't think you can, explain any of these characters really i mean i don't think you know it'd be hard pressed to kind of give you what was going on in them. besides like men they are men
0: yeah it, that's kind of one of the things i i wonder how much i agree with this choice that carpenter made because he wrote all of those scenes were in the script where you at least i think it was like you had maybe two or three minutes of a quick kind of montage at the beginning that introduced everybody and who they really really were In that they shot those scenes, it took maybe three minutes altogether, but that when John Carpenter was editing it, he just thought it slowed it down too much. And Mm. so even the actors themselves, there was a mild mutiny on the set because they had a gap in filming. Like they filmed a little bit, then they were waiting for some stuff. And so John Carpenter went in, took the assembly cut of everything they had, slashed it down. was like, oh, we're on the wrong track. And so when everybody came back to set, he was like, you know, all that interpersonal stuff that you guys were doing, all your character driven stuff, we're just not going to do that anymore. And so the cast themselves were like, you've let the humans lose to the monster. Like the monster is beating down even our performances. And they were paranoid and they were starting to turn against him on set.
3: So interesting. And, you know, I will also just go. I want to call out one person that we didn't talk about yet who does play a large part in this film, but wasn't involved with it at all, which is uh, Drew Struzan, who created the poster for the film. Right. Here's a movie Mm -hmm. with 12 or was it fifteen? You know, faces, men, and what is the poster? This iconic image that has no face, no. It, it's this. I know. I mean, if you've seen the poster, the thing, it's sort of like this. It almost looks like a Frankenstein esque body with like light exploding out of its head. So, I mean, I also go to that direction and say, like, wow, the, the, the faces aren't even used to advertise this movie. And every poster I've ever seen of The Thing, you know, maybe you'll see an eye or a slit. So it, it does embody everything. And Drew Struzan, who did this poster, he, he did it overnight, never saw any photos from the movie, just kind of had the premise and then just drew this up. So I don't know. You know, it's, it's interesting that The Thing really did... Take over the actors. I mean, I, I love that idea that they're this like under, you know. Maybe Drew Struzan was uh, possessed too, but like this idea that like it pushed away the core humanity. I mean, that the whole movie is about losing humanity and fighting for your humanity and fighting for your identity. It, it, but it's interesting that in every way that's kind of viewed. You know, you don't. It's not a, it's not a Kurt Russell face. You know, you don't. It's not his face that you know, like maybe would be on a poster the way that we're used to now.
0: It's true. You know, and when you lay it out that way, it makes a ton of sense to me that this film wasn't successful. You know, also part of it is John Carpenter just said. You know, around mm-hmm. him. The zeitgeist was moving against horror films that a couple of weeks before this film came out, one of the, um, the universal marketers, they sent him a study and it said they did a survey and in the last 66 months, audience interest in wanting to see horror films had gone down 70%. Like there was just this wow. plummet And in a way. It's almost like he did it to himself on accident. You know, he started a huge horror craze with Halloween that everybody made horror films. They made a bunch of kind of bad ones as well. Like it was tired as a genre um, only in four years. It was like a really quick four-year rise and fall that he started and then they associated him with at the end and they're like, we're not in the mood for this. You know, Part of the reason why I chose like a thing for the New York Times is they even did a follow-up piece that was came, that came out, I think, the month The Thing came out or the month after where it was talking about horror films and it was called Have Horror Films Gone Too Far? And it pointed out that in the year before, in 1981, 95 horror films were shot. But in 1982, only 15 were made that audiences were just suddenly over it and they said we could be witnessing the twilight of the ghouls.
3: Well, but I mean, this is the thing that horror goes through ebbs and flows, right? It becomes like the Blumhouse model comes back or Scream came back in the 90s. Like, we go through these things. And I think that most people are bracing for that to happen with superhero movies. But maybe it's too ingrained for that to even happen.
0: Oh, let it happen. Let it happen. <laughs> but I think that uh, part of why we're able to respect the thing now is because you're, Carpenter didn't back down. You know, when he made the thing in 1982, he didn't try to, like, pander to audiences. He didn't try to, like, cheer it up or, like, be like, oh, no, we have to make it slightly nicer. Oh, God, E.T. is coming out. How can I make alien uh, people think that my alien is not that bad of a guy? He made exactly the dark, nihilistic, unsparing, unsentimental movie that he wanted to make. I mean, it is a holistic movie. Like, you cut it through and through. It's the same all the way on the inside. And I think with some distance we're able to give that movie so much more respect. Like it stands exactly for who it yes. was, what it wants to be, what it wanted to do. It is the movie it wanted to be. And it's so I, rare, I think to see a movie that you feel like didn't compromise, even though it had to make a financial compromises, you don't see it on screen. It is an uncompromising film all the way through.
3: And yet it lasts now that stands the test of time. You know, I know we've talked about this a lot, Amy, uh, but this is the first time we have a movie about an alien and we asked the question, if we shot this into space, it was intercepted by an alien race, what would they think of this film? And I'll I'll just jump in and say, look, they're going to love it. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is right up an alien's alley. I mean, maybe we're going about this the whole wrong way. Maybe we should just be sending alien movies to them. But, uh, you know, I think it shows the culture of aliens being smart, resourceful, uh, you know, all the all the things and with the ambiguous ending. I mean. Look, if I'm an alien, I'm proud of. I'm I'm proud of how I'm represented here.
0: Well, you don't think an alien would watch this movie and be like, "Oh, I want to go kill those dudes. Fuck those guys."
3: Well, I think that they know that they can at any point. I don't think they're going to be like, "Let me go at let me go at him." And he's like, "Oh, if I ever get in that situation if my ship crash lands uh on the planet, I got this."
0: I mean, it is. If I was an alien, I would be like, "Definitely be a dog. Definitely be a dog. Everybody leave you alone." <laughs> You'll get free food, you can infiltrate, you can creep around. That dog, by the way, amazing dog. I mean, Jed is a famous dog. Jed went on to be in um, The Adventures of Natty Gann. Jed's in White Fang. Jed is like a big deal dog actor. Uh, Jed is actually owned um, by Henry Winkler's second cousin. So he has a little bit of a celebrity connection.
3: I got to ask Henry if he uh, ever met Jed. Yeah. Um,
0: But I mean, I think Jed is such a good example of... The human ability, maybe one of the best things we do as humans is we ascribe emotions to things. We want to care and love. And the fact that we can watch Jed walk around the base and we're like, oh, I bet this is what he's thinking. Like we project emotions onto him.
3: Good casting. We don't just love him. Good casting. And I I love that. Maybe Jed is the best cast role in the whole film. You know, Amy, it's been so great talking about this movie with you. And there's so much fun stuff here. I'd just be remiss if I didn't mention one piece of like fun uh, history on this film. This is a good thing you could pull out at one point. This is the um the I think one of the few, if not only, a uh, universal film where the logo was not used in the opening credits because the movie opens on the planet Earth, and they thought it would be too confusing to show the logo of Earth and then have the saucer crashing into Earth. So basically. Uh, they just put simple white titles against black. And I think that actually brings you into the movie in a much more independent way. Like, there's something really cool about how this movie starts. And now, Amy, we are at the end of our horror series just a week after Halloween. And uh, we did this thing last time, uh, which was so much fun, which was uh, we got on my Twitch and you and I wanted to hear what everyone thought about these films that we just talked about. We talked about some great horror films. It was a shorter miniseries uh, than normal. Uh, But it was so much fun to get everybody's feedback. And we're going to do that again. Please join us there because not only we're going to hear from you and hear what you think about these films. Do they belong? Do they not belong on the list? But we are also going to reveal our next miniseries, which is Fucked Up Families fucked up families it's going to encompass a pretty uh big (laughs) big uh it's a big it's a big thing that we're trying to cover here and that's going to take us all the way till uh christmas actually and the first movie amy i'll let you announce it (gasps) in our brand new mini-series is raising arizona i am so excited for coen brothers movie the first coen brothers that we have been able to talk about on this show and what a great one to start off the fucked up families um like i said tomorrow uh friday if you're listening to this uh, on thursday the day it drops we'll be on twitch talking about all this revealing our entire lineup we'll also be revealing our lineup of fucked up family films on our website at unspooledpod.com and all of our socials uh but next week is raising arizona and let's take a listen to a little clip
4: Son, you got a panty on your head. Just you drive fast, eh?
1: Turn to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. <laughs> My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But... <laughs> Biology conspired to keep his childless.
2: You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. They got more than they can handle.
1: At the time, his little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems and the answer to all our prayers.
4: He's beautiful. What? Are you kidding? We got us a family here. I want Nathan Jr. back. What's his name? Ed Jr. Hi, Jr. So far, we've just been using Jr. We call him Jr. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's out there somewhere. Hold on, Nathan. We're gonna go pick up daddy.
3: Raising Arizona. Available wherever you can stream movies. Uh, and you can also go to your local public library. They have amazing ways to rent movies and even digital films. You don't have to even go there in person. It's so great. Uh, Amy, I... Uh, I hope you know that I would never take a flamethrower to you unless I was 100% positive you were infected.
0: You know what? I trust you and love you so much. You can take it to me if you're even 98%
3: positive. Wow, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, we will see you next <laughs> week for the beginning of our brand new miniseries, uh, Fucked Up Families, uh, starting with Raising Arizona, and see you on Twitch. And if you can't make the live Twitch stream, you can check out uh, an edited version of it that will be up there and will live there forever. And you can even go check it out right now to see uh, what your feedback was for all of our high school movies. It's right there. Uh, it's just twitch.tv slash Paul Shear. All right, see you next week, Amy. <laughs>